This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome. Uh, my name is Peter Cowie, and I have uh, the privilege and honor to be the Dean of the School of International Relations and Pacific Studies here at the University of California, San Diego. The school has, among the crown jewels of its assets, the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies, and tonight we are coming together in a celebration of Mexico moving forward, the premier event of the center each year, to bring to the public the great dialogue and engagement between the United States and Mexico. Uh, It's my great pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, uh, Professor Alberto Diaz-Cairo, who will do the honors of the introduction for this last part of the program. Alberto. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Um, So I am the former director of the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies. I'm delighted to be here with all of you today. And I really, you know, I want to express my, my commitment to keep on supporting this, this uh, event of Mexico moving forward, which I think is, uh, uh, you know, it should be one of the best ways we can commit uh, as, a, as the state of California, as the University of California uh, to Mexico. So, so it's a great pleasure for me to, to introduce you, Denise Dresser, tonight. Uh, I will deviate a little bit from what I was asked to do in terms of telling you about her career and her uh, credentials. Uh, most of you, I think, in this room know what it means to have somebody like Denise uh, sharing the evening with us. Uh, she's uh, one of the most courageous uh, and respected public intellectuals in Mexico. Uh, but I want to start by saying that she did not start that way. She actually started uh, in a perhaps more humble manner uh, in a small center uh, down there. Uh, where she published uh, the third monograph of the center. So I actually spent the afternoon reading some of her work. I I have to say I I do have this academic thing in me that I want to go back and reread things that are worth rereading. So she, she, she wrote this piece, which, which actually became, uh, she, she became famous overnight after writing this piece. Uh, it was one of the projects sponsored by the center. She was a fellow here. And it was this, uh, in the light of NAFTA and all the hype and all the excitement that was going on around uh, Salinas de Gortari uh, transformation of Mexico, she was one of the first critical voices uh, saying, listen, uh, there are some things that are not well, and we have to really think critically about them. And I just want to read you one phrase that is already there, uh, and, and it gives you a, a flavor of, of, of what Denise stands for. But the last line, I'm sorry, I do not know how to translate this into, into English, uh, but it is the word in Spanish is lapidaria, uh, which I think uh, describes some of what Denise is able to do with the way she uses words and language. And she tells us at the end of the piece, it's the last line, She says that what has happened in Mexico is that those who rule by manipulation have developed greater ways to keep on doing it. Uh, That was one of the things she highlighted in that last uh, piece. Second piece I want to highlight to those of you who do not know about this in Denise's career um, is a piece that I think any Mexican who has been in academia, in scholarship, uh, should be so envious of. 
which is the piece that won her the award for uh, the Mexican National Journalism Award, and it was the open letter to Carlos Slim. Uh, what she did in that letter is she was able to crystallize all the things that Mexicans in many ways of life had been wanting to write or to say and nobody would dare to say. And this is the kind of thing that Denise does, I think, beyond uh, you know, any reproach. Uh, and in that letter, she, she chastises Carlos Slim uh, for failing to be the most influential philanthropist and instead choosing to be the most insensitive, insensible plutocrat. And this is, again, this incredible turns of phrases of how Denise can, you know, in one few, in a few words, tell us what's, what's really going on. The last thing I want to, to, to touch upon is, is probably the thing I most admire of Denise's work. Uh, and it is not probably the one you will suspect, uh, which is her gritos y susurros. Um, so this is um, Cries and Whispers. Uh, there's two books. These are uh, incredible stories of the incredible women that we have in Mexico, uh, including her own. Uh, so the, 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 the courage of also exposing herself to tell her own story, but also finding the space to give voices to all these women. Uh, and I, I really think, you know, this is uh, just to give so much credit uh, to the incredible wealth, the incredible talent uh, of, of all the women, um, you know, it's, I think 37 in the first book, 39 in the second book, uh, who, like Denise, are making a huge difference in the country. So I really want to welcome you, Denise. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. It's a particular pleasure to be here this evening because, uh, as Alberto so generously expressed, I am a product of the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies. And that monograph that the Center bravely published in 1991, when no one dared to speak against Carlos Salinas, I think was a hallmark uh, of... Uh, of the autonomy of the center, of the respect that the center has, has engendered, and so much that it has done over the years to promote the study of Mexico and the haven that it became for someone like me. I'm not an expert on NAFTA. I'm here to speak about the country I carry under my skin. The country that is waking up, that is moving forward, that is rising. A country that according to the new narrative has shown that it's ready to pact, negotiate, propose reforms and approve them. A country that no longer wants to be hostage to archaic traditions and entrenched practices. A country ready to leave behind the nationalist position about sovereignty, tossing out its heavy ideological baggage, prepared to surmount 15 years of few reforms and little growth, prepared to assume a new national consensus embodied by the Pacto por México, the Pact for Mexico, that became the signature uh, pact of Enrique Peña Nieto's first year. The future is promising. 
the foreign press says. Mexico has crossed the threshold and has approved reforms that had been politically unpalatable and historically rejected. Mexico has said goodbye to authoritarianism and need not fear its return. The former ruling party, the PRI, has reinvented itself and so has the country, the optimists insist. Peña Nieto was brought into office by the majority of the electorate and was not designated by the Dedazo. He has to coexist with a maze of checks and balances, including the Bank of Mexico, the Federal Transparency Institute, the new Telecommunications Institute, an increasingly independent Supreme Court. For better or for worse, the government can no longer do whatever it pleases as it did for so many years under dominant party rule. It cannot simply assume that it will win the next presidential election. And that is because the PRI has been willing and able to push through the reforms that it promised on the fiscal, telecommunications, energy, judicial, and political front. Now, the problem with this argument is that it underestimates the complacency of the political class the weight of the vested interests that are aligning themselves against the reforms. It underestimates the ties that bind Peña Nieto and how they will tighten as the implementation of the reforms take place. It doesn't give enough weight to the commitments that the president and his party have with the veto centers poised to sabotage and undermine and dilute the reform process. In order for that process of Peñastroika that some augur and others would like to see, the president and his party would have to undermine, weaken the interests that carried him into Los Pinos, the presidential residence, the TV networks, the union gerontocracy, the business monopolies, the corporatist bases of the PRI, all of the accomplices of Mexico's system of crony capitalism that the PRI engendered and is still benefiting from. All of the veto centers that pay lip service to the reform but are aligning themselves to make sure that they create new cronies instead of dismantling the economic structure that makes them possible. It's true, Mexico does have a credible narrative for the future. But in order to actually write it, the PRI would have to become what it has never been, a party capable of creating a new paradigm for economic growth and economic inclusiveness and political representation. And at the helm of it, a president that sees the reforms beyond the celebration of their approval, who is capable of maintaining the reformist impulse alive despite the pressures to quell it, what goes beyond the photo shoot and the applause and the imagery and the cover of Time magazine, Saving Mexico, that has accompanied the reforms and makes sure that their implementation and the elaboration of pending secondary legislation doesn't amount to just window dressing. So let it, let's examine reform by reform, the underpinnings, the implications, what has happened, what comes next. Let's talk first about fiscal reform, and we have the great privilege of having the expert, the Mexican expert on fiscal reform here, Carlos Elizondo, and what I'm going to say pretty much sums up his argument. A mini-reform, a band-aid, a patch, something that doesn't resolve the substantive problem, but rather seeks to alleviate it temporarily. That is the reform that Peña Nieto's government 
pushed forward. And that's the way it should be interpreted. Not as a grand bargain, but as a small intervention. Not as something that is going to revolutionize the relationship of the Mexican taxpayer to the state, but something that will keep it intact. Not the renegotiation of the prevailing fiscal pact, but the continuation of the one that already exists. With the same petrolization, with the same evasion, with the same base of captive taxpayers, the Peña Nieto administration has not sought to change the pre-existent fiscal pact based on little taxation, a lot of spending, and the use of oil revenues to cover the gaps. He wants to give it CPR. And yes, it does hit the business class by reducing certain privileges like the fiscal consolidation regime. And yes, it does eliminate some preferential regimes, but it is not a reform that contemplates the end of ample spaces for corruption, that entails plugging up the holes, that attempts to depend less on oil revenue or rationalize public spending. And that's why it falls short. That's why it constitutes just an effort to raise some taxes, not an effort to use them better. That's why it reflects a state that wants to intervene more in the economy without having to spend better or with more transparency. Because what the reform does do is contemplate spending. Spending and keep on spending. It is going to generate permanent pressure on the budget by introducing universal pensions and unemployment insurance. It is going to raise um, spending over revenues and widen the budget deficit. It is going to leave behind 12 years of fiscal discipline that characterized the National Action Party rule. And uh, um, uh, uh, a fiscal disciplines that the PRI is now distancing itself from. We are in the presence of an important expansion of the Mexican state in the economy. We are witnessing how it pushes the limits of that intervention without controls, without supervision, without accountability, because even though the reform does contemplate some mechanisms for the control of spending, like the centralization of payments assigned to teachers, the teachers union, once again in the hands of the federal government, in reality there are few padlocks. There is no way of dealing with the budgetary allocations that are growing the most, like pension payments for public sector employees. There is no way of reducing the excessive uh, um, uh, resources that are channeled to the political parties. What there is is a rise in public spending per se. Net spending under Peña Nieto will reach historic levels. And the problem is that we don't know if the additional resources will line the pockets of the bureaucrats or go to the construction of highways and schools. We don't know if they are going to buy another watch, fancy watch, for the head of the oil workers union, Carlos Romero de Champs, or if they will lead to the social mobility of those he allegedly represents. Because the reforms don't um, resolve the deep-rooted problem of our fiscal pact. It, the reform does not resolve the dilemmas generated by taxes that are insufficiently collected, by spending that is inefficiently assigned, by public resources that are badly distributed. It doesn't attempt to change the historic dynamic of a state that has little legitimacy to demand more taxes when it spends so badly. If that doesn't change, no tax collection effort in Mexico will be enough. 
and Mexican citizens will continue to evade taxes, and business oligarchs will continue to elude their payment, and the government, instead of rewriting that dysfunctional pact, will continue to place band-aids on it. Let's move to telecommunications reform. Let's see, before the approval of this much-touted reform, there was a lot of responsibility to dole around. Presidents and ministers and regulators and congressmen responsible for allowing that the country's public goods, like Spectrum, end up in the hands of the few. Responsible for allowing two media conglomerates for the possibility of manipulating and blackmailing and pressuring the political class. Responsible for cutting up consciences so they fit the size of the screen. Responsible for creating a fourth estate that frequently acts like the first one, above and beyond representative institutions. This was a reality that was constructed in the 1950s, was exacerbated during the Salinas period, was institutionalized in the Fox Sexenio, and now the government is actually trying to change through reforms to the federal communications law. Reforms that seek to regulate, contain, domesticate, submit the networks to the empire of the law instead of letting them place themselves above it, promote competition in a sector that badly needs it. Because the last 20 years have been full of unfulfilled promises to promote competition there. And suddenly the shock of the student movement, Yo Soy 132, the public finger pointed at Televisa and TV Azteca as manipulative and anti-democratic forces, the election of congressmen and senators who used to work for the networks and were elected to protect their interests, and thus the impulse with which all political parties, but particularly the left, embraced the need to change the law, take on the pending task, confront the veto centers in the media, and reach an agreement to restructure the underpinnings of media power that had become abusive immune to competition, and a key reason that explains our dysfunctional democracy. Now, the reforms presuppose that the government will recover the domain over concessioned public goods. Those who exploit them will be subjected to norms and will not be able to act of their own accord as they have been doing. That the president will not be simply able to give away concessions as he did in the past. And that the newly created regulatory bodies will have the power to enforce their decisions, that they will have for the first time the capacity to impose substantial public fines on those who do not fulfill the obligations of their concession, that the public interest will actually prevail over the interests of Emilio Azcárraga and Ricardo Salinas Pliego. Now, that doesn't mean that the war has been won. On the contrary, the television networks are poised to veto and use any weapon in their arsenal to make sure that the reforms do not touch them. They have already achieved the postponement of the elaboration of secondary legislation without any consequences. They are trying to make sure that must carry, must offer doesn't happen. And although the new regulatory body, the IFETEL, has the capacity to fine, open up licitations of spectrum, declare the existence of dominant players, and regulate interconnection fees, its role is currently limited by the non-existence of new rules that the Congress should have created but hasn't. Because congressmen are too busy slicing up the budget and opening up the oil sector. 
because they haven't understood that the telecoms battle is the right battle at the right time against the right enemy. And instead of waging it, they are wondering how to declare a truce before the war even begins. Moving on to energy reform. The government seemed willing to compromise the implementation and content of other reforms in order to assure the passage and the success of the one that it really wanted all along. The one that it hopes will be the catalyst for growth, the one that will cement the changing international narrative about Mexico, energy reform. And it's important that it was actually passed given the diagnosis published recently by the Mexican Competitiveness Institute and its president, Juan Pardinas, is here this evening. A study that exhibits the costs of falling behind, the cost of maintaining the status quo for so many years, the costs of staying at the margins of a global energy reform that Mexico has not been a part of. For decades, we've been, as you know, wasting our potential, wasting our time, channeling more resources into the pocket of Romero de Champs than to the vast majority of Mexicans, channeling resources from Pemex to the government that it should have obtained through taxes. We needed an energy reform that liberated Pemex from the ideological underpinnings that strangled it, from, um, from the weight of the union, from the fiscal exploitation by the government, and it was supposed to be about taking advantage of lessons offered by other countries that manage their oil sector better than we do. Countries like Saudi Arabia and Cuba and Brazil and Colombia and Norway and Canada that have reformed their oil sectors, their energy sectors, in a flexible and pragmatic way to attract investment, to create new regulatory frameworks, to let the, the state operator like Statoil in Norway effectively maximize oil resources. Um, so how has the reform addressed some of these issues? I'd say incompletely and perhaps dangerously. And in this context, I'd like to reflect on what for many became the silver bullet, the most obvious solution to complex problems, the only weapon that according to legends and folklore can slay beasts and werewolves, the weapon of choice for those who believe that private investment in Bemex is the only way to address problems of productivity, efficiency, corruption, corporatism, and in an effort to break the statist stranglehold, run the risk of repeating the same mistakes of the past and leaving the real beast alive, the structure of Mexico's crony capitalism and the true evils that it has engendered. Too many politicians and analysts and investors have celebrated energy reform because they are centering their gaze on an easy target. They recommend silver bullets against the oil workers' union and close their eyes when faced with the fact that this reform does not touch their privileges. They excoriate the rapacity of public monopolies without taking into account weak regulation that explains the same rapacity in private monopolies. They view private investment as the panacea without understanding that if the rules of its participation don't change, the alleged cure will be worse than the disease. The silver bullet that the reform um, put in the gun will not bring about the promised benefits, but rather renewed opportunities for cronyism. 
in this case cronies who are close to the Peña Nieto administration. What Mexico has to think through and has not yet in the secondary legislation that is still pending is how to modernize the energy sector without passing on to private hands the wealth that it produces, how to extract oil without simply transferring its gains to private hands, how to strengthen Bemex's financial structure without simply creating conditions for more concentration of wealth, how to promote investment in a key sector while distributing the gains for development. Mexico has not answered these questions well and thus runs the risk of repeating past mistakes because none of what was approved in terms of promoting private investment is intrinsically bad in and of itself. And taken together, the reforms um, do uh, channel needed resources to a sector that cannot obtain financing elsewhere. Um, given that the finance ministry was unwilling to sacrifice the resources that Bemex provides to the government and its clientels. The problem lies in what wasn't contemplated, in what wasn't proposed, in what, wasn't has, what hasn't been part of the debate, something that the political and business class eludes the promotion of competition, the need for strong regulation, the protection for consumers, the imperative of the public interest. Measures that countries like the UK and New Zealand and the state of Texas implemented when they privatized their energy companies under the supervision of efficient and powerful regulatory enterprises um, capable of setting clear rules among new players. That is what is needed still in Mexico to transform the country's economic horizon through the construction of energy markets that benefit Mexican citizens and consumers, and not just the private companies that pressured the government to open up the oil sector with the objective of extracting more rents from there, too. Let's just examine for a moment the privatizations that took place under the Salinas period in the 1980s to understood the magnitude of the mistakes that were made the depth of the rectifications that are required. As the World Bank report entitled Democratic Governability in Mexico Beyond Polarization and the Capture of the State argues, the Salinas reforms allegedly sought the same objectives that the Peña Nieto reforms are seeking today. Promote economic efficiency, augment fiscal revenues, attract foreign investment, promote competition, create functional markets, but in many cases, like banking and transportation and telecommunications, the reforms only produced greater market concentration and less competitiveness in the economy. Privatizations only entailed transferring rents from the state to the private sector. They were processes that were friendly to business elites and very harmful to consumers. And the same thing may happen in the energy sector if the government keeps on believing that private investment is a silver bullet. The ills that Mexico faces are more complex, and you won't be able to confront them with only one type of weapon. Um, despite the reforms, the beast of crony capitalism survives due to the absence of regulatory agencies, strong, autonomous, independent, that can contain those who have been able to establish dominant positions in one sector after another. That beast survives 
thanks to a way of governing Mexico in which vested interests have been able to guide public policy in a way that benefits their interests. And that is why energy reform will not be a sign of progress unless the regulatory conditions that accompany it change. So I've talked about the good, the bad. I want to talk now about the ugly. (laughs) What Reforma newspaper calls the ejecutometro, a monthly measurement of the number of executions that take place. It reveals that the same number of executions took place under the first 100 days of Enrique Peña Nieto as in the last 100 days of Felipe Calderón. The numbers about criminality in Mexico are among the worst in the Western Hemisphere. And according to Latino Barometro, over 40% of Mexicans say that either them or a family member has been the victim of violence. Insecurity, according to a recent study by J.P. Morgan, shaves off 1% of the country's GDP, GDP on an annual basis. The new Mexican miracle has yet to reach the highways of Michoacán or the streets of Acapulco, recently declared the second most dangerous city in the world. Because violence and insecurity persist, even though the conversation about them, especially outside of Mexico, has changed. Impunity continues, even though no one in the government wants to talk about it. And there's much to talk about, given the approval last month of a national code for penal procedures, a code we should applaud and also lament. Applaud the fact that it introduces oral adversarial trials in a country that needed them, but lament because it fails to deal with what happens outside of the courts. Specifically, it fails to regulate the police leading to people who are apprehended and then tortured, interrogation processes that are not standardized or supervised, policemen who are badly trained, processes for obtaining eyewitness testimony that do not follow best international practices. So Mexico is going to have clear rules for judges, but not for policemen. And in places like Michoacán, the police are the problem. The courts are the problem. The absence of the rule of law is the problem. In the plazas and the streets, in Apatzingán, in Zitácuaro, in Morelia, in Tierra Caliente, signs of the emergence of a parallel state, signs of a microcosm of what happens in the rest of the country. In places where the government doesn't govern, but rather la familia and the caballeros templarios do where instead of calling the police instead of uh, uh, in search of protection, people, people prefer, prefer to call a cartel or a criminal group to do so, where self-defense groups have burgeoned in the absence of a state that can carry out its most fundamental task, the legitimate monopoly of violence. Story after story of kidnappings, extortion, torture, theft, theft corruption, and the simple fear of walking out on the street story after story of what it means to live in a violence-riddled municipality, in a captured state, under the control of parallel sources that have become a second law. Despite the 50,000 soldiers on the streets, despite the 20,000 federal police on the highways, despite the over 60,000 dead due to drug-related violence in the last six years. 
criminal syndicates grow and control, decide and diversify, the democratic transition brought about the end of the Pax Mafiosa that the PRI had, con had constructed with organized crime. And the arrival of an albeit imperfect democracy has entailed the end of old accords and the beginning of new rivalries that not even the Peña Nieto government can control. And because of that vacuum that organized crime can fill in the face of the impotence and the incapacity of the government, whether it be federal, state, municipal, organized crime has begun to fill the deficiencies of the state. When citizens don't believe in the courts or in the police, criminals and self-defense groups fill that role. When the state cannot assure security or employment or avenues for social mobility, cartels begin to do so. And that is the real challenge for Mexico. A war less centered on the apprehension of drug kingpins like uh, El Chapo Guzman and more on the seizure of their money. A war less centered on killing capos and more on creating functional courts. An effort that would require not just using the army as a deterrent and peacekeeper in places like Michoacán, but also a financial strategy to confiscate accounts and a political crusade to combat corruption wherever it may lie in the courts and in the municipal presidencies and in the governorships and in every corridor of power in Mexico. So throughout this journey, I've, I've asked you to accompany um, you, with, you with me this evening. There is one constant and recurring theme, the persistence under the new PRI of the old veto centers, the capacity of certain groups to block public policies geared toward the public interest, and in the face of them stands a weak society in an oftentimes captured state incapable of dismantling the web of privileges that has strangled the country for so long. To conclude, many of us believed that the transition to democracy would bring about a reformist effort geared towards the purpose of regulating, containing, competing, growing, we were wrong. Now under the PRI, we're beginning to see reforms that did not occur before, but the array of opposing forces should not be underestimated. There are still many beneficiaries of the status quo who have few incentives to sustain a reform-oriented coalition. Think of the rapacious public sector unions untouched, the businessmen entrenched in monopolized sectors still untouched, the corporatist campesino organizations taking advantage of subsidies like Procampo untouched, the obese and unproductive bureaucracy comfortably installed in the public sector untouched, dominant actors that behave according to the corporatist logic of the past and thus sabotage the future. Accustomed to, accustomed to defending privileges instead of accumulating merits, accustomed to extracting rents instead of competing to diminish them, and this extractive, rent-seeking, exclusionary system so well described by Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson in Why Nations Fail is perpetuated by political parties that defend their own fiefdom, their own cartload of public money, According to Duverger, in the same way that men conserve throughout the, their life the footprints of their childhood, political parties suffer the fate of their origins. And that is why the PRI, as a way of life, subsists. 
That is why it demonstrates selective tolerance towards impunity. And we only have to recall the case of Arturo Montiel, who has kidnapped his children in violation of the Hague Convention against the illegal, illegal uh, retention of children to understand why. That is why the PRI insists on the illegal practice of using social programs to buy votes. That is why it insists on spending without being accountable for doing so. And yes, there is the new, and there is what um, I think is the source of optimism for many, a basically urban electorate that has a growing capacity to communicate, um, a society that is full of young people who are organizing politically, as we saw in Yo Soy 132, a society that is learning how to resist and denounce and demand, that is learning how to criticize the inheritance of authoritarianism, that does not want to conform itself with a regression. And that, that fear is not unfounded. Political plurality in the states has reduced because the PRI is now in control of 20 of the 32 states. Even though El Bester Gordillo was jailed, corporatism uh, continues intact, as exemplified by an energy reform that Peña Nieto said would not touch the interests of the union. And what are some of the interests or privileges of the union? The capacity to transfer your job to a family member when you retire. And the sanction to those who have had such a corrupt influence on the country. And the exoneration has yet to occur. And I simply want to put out there the recent exoneration of Raul Salinas de Gortari as a prime example. Alternancia, the change in power, the rotation of power among parties, has served to, as Lorenzo Meyer says in his recent book, naturalize and normalize the old practices in the new democracy. And therein the disillusionment that does not come only from me. I'd ask you to look at the recent um, survey done by um, Latino Barometro, in which um, support for democracy in Mexico fell by 9%, and only 40% of those who were surveyed reaffirmed their support for that form of government. Only Honduras and Guatemala had worse results than we did, because we still have serious problems with our democracy. Parties that spend a lot and are not particularly representative, anti-democratic ways of using power and public money that, that continue despite uh, the reformist effort, and a judicial and penal system that keeps on jailing innocence while it exonerates the guilty. And the worst thing is we've grown accustomed to this. The accepted and tolerated dysfunctionality we believe that the unbound privileges and the excessive rent-seeking and the absence or intermittent rule of law are an unchangeable part of our national identity. We don't seem to understand that the entrenchment of the clientelist, corporatist, rent-seeking logic is greater in Mexico than in other countries and a defining reason of why we don't grow. And I find this an unacceptable situation. It leaves us out of the fold of rapidly growing emerging economies. It condemns 50 million Mexicans to live in a rich country that is poor and unsafe for them. 
It makes us incapable of promoting investment, competition, equal opportunities, and social mobility for the many. We insist on being an exceptional and unique country in so many ways. Exceptional in so far of the permanence of so many privileges in the hands of the few. Unique in so far as the social tolerance to this fact. And therefore, to me, the real solution for Mexico does not lie in the implementation of reforms from above. Real hope, I believe, lies in the creation of a context of greater demands from below, with the emergence of citizens who fight for rights and not just for government distribution of the spoils. Those who, to paraphrase Eleanor Roosevelt, would rather light a candle than complain in the dark. Those who continue to believe in Mexico's capacity to change, despite evidence to the contrary, our wide, melancholic, beautiful country, a place described by Efrain Huerta in his poem, High Treason, of rivers and fields sick with poppies and mountains spiked with magueyes, I think about our future, a grain of wheat, the ample heart of stone and air, and that makes many people like me believe in patriotism, in social justice, in creative indignation, in participation, in service, in individual rights, in what goes beyond the cynicism of cold men with eyes of tesontle and granite, the daily decisions of extraordinary Mexicans I know who jump and move and act, paralyzing the mediocre noise of the streets, calling attention to what ails us, voices of hope, of progress, voices to fight against fear, corruption, impunity, abuse, the arbitrary use of power, the stream of fatigues. Voices with which to understand that the real awakening of Mexico lies not just in legislative reforms. It entails dismantling what still remains of the old authoritarian system and the beginning of a new code of conduct for citizens, a united front against the return of the worst vices of the past under the new PRI, a citizen coalition so that our eyes don't remain wide shut. The task is Herculean, and it involves us all, every person sitting in this room who cares about Mexico. As for me, I was last here as a fellow 23 years ago, and here I am again, ready to work with more determination than ever in the only place I know with words and affiliated to the only party I belong to, which is ours. Perhaps tonight I'm being a bit of a romantic, but I think of Mexico and I think of more than the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think about my daughter Julia's wild, curly Mexican hair. The, nostal the nostalgia for Carlos Fuentes and Carlos Monsiváis and Germán de Esa, who left such a good mark behind them. Their growing urgency, I and many feel, for justice and dignity for all. I think of Mexico and I think of the sun going down over the ocean in San Pancho, a tiny town north of Punta Mita. The sound of the organ grinder walking down the streets of the Condesa, the majesty and the mystery of the intricate ruins at Mitla, every meal I've ever had at Dulce Patria, or simply riding on a bike down Paseo de la Reforma amidst the boisterous crowds on a Sunday morning. I think about the risk of losing our home 
our patria, like those who have suffered that fate due to the omnipresent violence in Michoacán and the opportunity of recovering it, of achieving what Rosario Castellanos wanted, that justice be felt among us. It is exciting to be a Mexican now, even if one does have to coexist with the return of the PRI. I am grateful for that grace. I don't believe we are unchangeable. I don't believe we are unmovable. I don't believe we are inferior to others or deserve any less. We are from the most transparent region of the air. Fortunately, we are from Mexico. Thank you. In 2011, we created Mexico Moving Forward in celebration of this university's 50th anniversary. We reflected on our commitment to serve exactly the ideals of scholarship and dialogue and inquiry that Denise reflected upon with her experience as a fellow at the center. And we reaffirmed our dedication to serving as a policy research institute to further the most profound discussions about the future, not just of Mexico, but of the United States and of democratic societies and our engagement in the world. There is no democratic society that does not, in some form or other, wrestle with exactly the questions that Denise Dresser has just posed to us today, because dealing with these issues are fundamental to the questions of how interests come together, how interests are balanced, how choices are made with imperfect information, where policies, no matter how brilliantly crafted intellectually, can only be implemented imperfectly, and where our choices are often about vectors and directions rather than about the fine-tuning as much as we would like to get the details right. But the unique contribution of a university and our pledge to you as a university engaged in the relationship between the United States and Mexico is to be a place where the hardest thoughts can be expressed, where the deepest research can be nurtured so that we can go beyond what we know or think we know today to look more deeply, to understand those fundamental choices and the dynamics around us in the world that are changing our understanding of past truths even as we sit with our experience of the past. That is what the center will continue to do, what Mexico moving forward as a forum each year will bring to the world in helping synthesize not just the experience of our scholars, but the experience of all of you as leaders engaging in this great process of discovery, of trial and error, of passion, of reason, and of hope. And if we do that successfully in Mexico moving forward and through the work of the center, we will have honored the responsibilities of a great public research university. We will honor the tradition that the center has stood up for in regards to the engagement between the United States and Mexico. And we will honor the passion that this audience brings to what is one of the most fundamental relationships for the United States and Mexico and the world. 
Thank you very much for being with us tonight. Thank you very much, Denise, for joining us this evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.